Let's pray. Let's pray into that. Uh, God, it's our prayer today that Jesus would be magnified, that Jesus would be seen as great in our lives, in this church, in everything that we're about, God, from, you know, the, 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 the kind of Monday through, you know, Friday or Saturday or just the, the, the work week, uh, whatever that looks like for us, uh, to uh, our friendships, to um, our, our, our family. God, we ask that you would be seen as great and that um, your love would be so clear that people can't help but be attracted uh, to who you are. So God, we pray that Jesus would be magnified, seen as great uh, in the kids' classes today. As the kids uh, go up in just a moment to, to learn and to, to do all their thing, God, that, that you would uh, show them more of who you are. That they would understand more about you and your love. Uh, that they would understand why Jesus came and died and, and rose again. Uh, so God, help us as well as we open your word to uh, really receive it and that Jesus, you would be magnified in our lives. And the, the, the truths that we see here, God, that they wouldn't just be, you know, kind of this, you know, 35, 45 minute just exercise of listening. But these would be transformational moments that change the way we live tomorrow, Thursday, uh, the, next, the next month, the next year. So, God, that's our ask. That's our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. So, uh, kids, you guys have an awesome time in Redemption Kids this morning. If you're a new parent, you want to escort your child to their class, feel the freedom to do so. And as they are on their way, I want to do two things. I want to welcome everyone to the gathering of Redemption Hill. If you are new or if you're, you know, just returning after uh, we haven't seen you in a while, welcome, welcome back. Uh, we hope that if you're new, you caught uh, our team outside connections. You got a first time guest gift bag. If you missed that on the way in, catch it on the way out. And uh, it's our joy to have you as our special guest today. Uh, and as, uh, as, you know, we prepare to hear from uh, God's word, we're going to be uh, continuing to spend time in this book uh, called 1 Corinthians in the Bible. And uh, this, this letter was written by uh, really the, the prominent leader of the early church. After the death of Jesus, uh, there was Peter who was like the founder and the, and the, and the not the founder, but the, the, the leader, the key leader of the early church. And then Jesus is the founder. Just back up real quick, all right? Just a little confused. Okay. Uh, Peter was, was the kind of the spokesman of the early church. And then there was this man named Paul who actually made it his business. What up, Jake? What made it his business to persecute Christians. And then God flipped his world upside down and he did nothing but what we just sing about. Magnify Jesus, point to the greatness of Jesus, help people understand who Christ is and the difference that he can make in our lives. And so as we jump into this section of this book that Paul wrote, we're going to encounter what some people call gray areas, okay. A gray area is a situation or circumstance in life that uh, it may not be readily apparent how we should respond in that given circumstance, okay. So it's not, it's not like clearly right or wrong. It's not clearly black or white, okay. It's, it's gray. And it requires wisdom to know what to do because 
in some circumstance, the same action may be wise and right. And in other circumstances, the action may be unwise or wrong. And so Paul is going to take us in to this topic of gray areas. And this is so important because uh, I don't know if you've caught, uh, you know, the, the, the drift of, you know, the way of Jesus. But Jesus did not come. Listen, please hear this today. Especially if you're new to Christianity wondering what it's all about. Okay, Jesus did not come to show us who he is and then say, you know what, um, you need to like live your life in such a way as if there is not a real world going on around you. In fact, Jesus com <coughs> comes and he uh, shows us that, that everything that happens in our lives is directly connected to his ways and his life. We love what C.S. Lewis uh, said in his book, Mere Christianity. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see the sun, but because by it I see everything else. And what this means is that uh, Jesus changes the way that we're a friend. Jesus changes the way that we work. Jesus changes the way that we study in school. Jesus changes every, the way we listen to every, everything about us. And so, so what I love about this section of Corinthians is that it gives us a compass for living in the real world. What we're going to find is that the Corinthians were dealing with some specific issues and how Paul guides them to deal with this specific issue has so much relevance for how we live out our lives on the day to day. You see, it might surprise you, but... All throughout human history, there have been essentially three key responses to how a lover of God, a follower of Jesus, should respond in any given culture. Okay, so we can go back to, you know, Moses in Egypt. We can go to Daniel in Babylon. We can go to these first followers of Jesus in a Roman culture that wanted to do nothing to do with Christianity. And we can see that ultimately there are going to be one of three responses, okay? And you might want to write these down as you process them, okay? Number one, uh, Christians sometimes take the posture of we are, listen, against the culture. All right, so this is the first option is Christians against the culture. This response rejects most everything in the culture and then often retreats into our little subcultures. You know, it's like, hey, let's protect ourselves. Let's not mix it up with this, you know, bad, bad, bad world out here. But we're just going to kind of withdraw and do our own thing because no one else understands. And we, it's so dangerous out there. And, and this, this is uh, one response. We could call this Cultural starvation, all right, cultural starvation. Uh, these people would say if the world touches it, then we should forsake it. And, and maybe here are just some examples. Uh, Want to go to the movies? No. Uh, did you download that app? That's from the devil. Uh, how about, let, it's, it's still a little high, you know, let's go to the beach. No, I might sin if I go to the beach. You know, it's like, and it's, it's, it's Christians against the culture. It's, it's cultural starvation. Now listen, there are certainly some things that we need to reject, right? But, but we don't need to reject everything. After all, God made a good world. He created this world for us to enjoy. So the first response is Christians against the culture. But then the second response is Christians of the culture. All right? 
Everything is not rejected, but everything is received. It's like everything is good. And, and what they would say is, if God made it, let's enjoy it. To the point where all of a sudden it, it becomes almost impossible to see a distinction between the way that someone who follows Jesus lives and the way that someone who does not follow Jesus lives. So conversations might go down like this. Uh, Want to go to Encore tonight? I just got paid. Or take a hit of this something something. God made dirt. Don't don't hurt. What about, what about this one? Uh, wear, wear this dress. If they look, that's their problem. Or listen to this music that degrades women. Man, I wouldn't download it, but I just, that beat is fire. You know what I'm saying? Like it is just like, I, I just gotta, I gotta listen to that beat. Who cares about the lyrics? So, so we see that this would not be cultural starvation, but cultural gluttony. We're just taking everything in. We're just receiving everything without discernment, without uh, careful thinking and wisdom. And so I just got to tell you, as followers of Jesus, I believe what the Bible, what Paul is going to push us to this morning is not Christians against the culture, nor is it Christians of the culture, but it is Christians in the culture. Christians in the culture. Christians in the culture neither reject nor receive everything. They're neither against nor of in all circumstances. They are neither fearful nor naive. Christians in the culture live in the world, but they consistently show they are not of the world. They receive some things, reject other things, but then look for opportunities to redeem whatever needs a touch of heaven. We could call this cultural fitness. Not cultural starvation, not cultural gluttony, but cultural fitness. We know how to live in the world faithful to God, but in a way that, that navigates the complexities of our everyday life, even so many circumstances and, and situations that, that, that either aren't of God or maybe uh, could be something that we can step into, but we need to apply wisdom that God gives us. And so that's exactly what's going on here in Corinth. You might be surprised that Paul spends three chapters, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, talking about this one issue of the Corinthians eating food, eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And what he's going to, to show us is that we should pursue a life that bleeds red in the gray areas, all right? We want to bleed red in the gray areas. I hope you're tracking with me. Does anyone understand what I mean by that? We want to bleed red in the gray areas. What, what, what do you think about when you think about the color red? Huh? Come on. Think of love. Oh, you guys are so smart. You guys are just amazing this morning. Okay, so another way to say this would be this. Carry the love of Christ to every person and into every circumstance. Carry the love of Christ to every person and into every 
circumstance. What we're going to encounter here through these first 13 verses is Paul gives us two key principles, okay? Number one, he would say, eat whatever you want as long it is, as it is not inherently wrong, all right? But then on the flip side, he's going to say, but abstain if it hurts someone else's faith. These are the two key principles that he lays out through these 13 verses. So I want to read them for us. You can listen carefully and follow along as I read this chapter. This is what Paul says. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if, some, if, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and sisters and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. I want to sum up this chapter with Two principles on love in terms of how we can bleed red into the gray areas. How we can carry the love of Christ to every person and into every circumstance. All right? The first one is this. Love outshines knowledge. Okay? Love outshines knowledge. What we have going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is another instance where the Corinthians, you remember, the Corinthians were writing correspondence back with Paul and covering these issues of like, hey, what do we do in this circumstance, in that circumstance? So you can see that they have an issue that they're raising because Paul puts it in quotations. Uh, actually, the translators do for us in verse 1. This is what's coming from the Corinthians. All of us possess knowledge. So he's, he's addressing this issue that concerns 
people eating meat that was sacrificed in pagan temples. Now, we need to understand that this would have been eaten in three different contexts, okay? Number one, there were, there were like dining halls at these temples, which would have been kind of like our modern-day restaurants, okay? Where uh, there was this, 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 you know, false worship happening, and they were sacrificing these animals, but then they were taking the, the, the meat, and they were then serving it in the dining hall. So it was kind of like a restaurant experience. Um, then they were also selling them in meat markets. So uh, the, the primary meat markets of that day would have contained meat that, from animals that were sacrificed at temples. Where you could go, just like we go to the grocery store, you could go and buy the, the, the meat and then you could go cook it at home and eat it in the privacy of your own home. But then thirdly, we see that there were times that eating this meat was part of a pagan rite of worship. And Paul's going to address all three circumstances. And just to give you a preview, he's going to say, in some circumstances, go for it. In other circumstances, abstain. But in any case, we need to be guarded, guided by love. And it seems that the Corinthians were divided on this. Some were saying never eat it. Christians against the culture. Others saying eat it whenever you want. Christians of the culture. And Paul gets to his principles beginning in verse 1. He, he essentially begins and he, and he hears them saying this. Uh, Paul, what, what, they're, what they're basically saying in verse 1 when they say, hey, all of us possess knowledge. What these Corinthians are saying is this. Uh, Paul, listen, uh, when it comes to food sacrificed in these pagan temples, we know better. We know that this, you know, meat that was sacrificed to these idols, idols aren't real, Paul. Like, we don't have to worry about that. They don't even, there's nothing true about them. And so when it comes to the opportunity to, you know, eat that Bobby Flay quality barbecue, we're going to go ahead and do our thing because an idol is nothing. And Paul says this. He says, look, you might know so much, but your knowledge is actually an arrogant knowledge. Because your knowledge is leading you to not consider the people around you. And so Paul says, look, knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. He wants, he wants us to weigh, live in the way of Jesus, the way of love. And so, so Paul, look, he says this knowledge. He, he's not saying all knowledge, which should be comforting to those of us who live in the Athens of America, right? Those of you who have come to these great universities to study and learn and gain all the knowledge that you can. Okay, knowledge is not bad, but it's a knowledge that lifts ourselves up rather than giving ourselves away. By the way, that is the distinction between pride and love, which can never be compatible because pride elevates oneself where love gives of oneself. And Paul is saying, look, pursue the path of love. Seek to build others up. If you think I love, I mean, verse 2 is pretty strong, okay? You think like sometimes we just like tell it like it is. Okay, uh, verse 2, Paul is like just telling it like it is. Look at what he says. He says, if anyone imagines he knows something, you think you're so smart, you think you know everything, all right? If you think you know something, uh, you might not even yet know as you ought to know. In other words, if you think you have the, knowledge, uh, the market cornered on knowledge, you betray the fact that you've got a lot more to learn. But then I love what he does in verse 3. 
Paul continues on this theme of knowledge and love. And he weds them together by saying that as you seek to live a life of love with love outshining knowledge, what is really going to help you do that is understanding not so how much you know, but how much you are known. And so he goes into this statement in verse 3. He says, but if anyone loves God, if you, Corinthians, I know you love God. I know you, you believe in Jesus. You're trying to follow his ways. And look, it's not so much about what you know, but it's about how much God knows you. And as I was thinking about this and processing this this week, it seems that Paul, being so incredibly wise, what he's trying to do, I think, is he's intentionally putting this statement in to reorient their perspective. He's trying to help them see that, that just as God is a God full of love, a God full of grace, that when we weren't thinking of God, God was thinking about us. When we weren't chasing after God, God was chasing after us. And so he says, look, it's, it's understanding how much that you have been loved that is going to put you in a position to love the people around you. And he sets the parameters for them in verses 1 through 3. And then he moves on in verses 4 through 6 to talk about true knowledge. And it's interesting here. I told you, like, Paul's going back and forth. He's saying, like, hey, you need to pump the brakes. Or like, hey, you're right. Like, we're going to go. I'm rolling with you. And what we find here in verse 4 is Paul is really in agreement with this knowledge crowd. He says in verse 4, look at this. As to, the, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's what they were saying. And Paul is saying, like, you know what? Corinthian knowledge people, you're right. I agree with you. In fact, I've read and memorized Psalm 115 that says, idols have mouths but cannot speak, ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see. There's nothing to an idol. Anything that, that we elevate in the place of God or even in their day, actual physical statues that people were coming and offering sacrifices to and bowing down before. Paul saying, look, that's not even, that's, there's nothing to that. It's just wood and, 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 and stone. And then, he goes on and he says, there is no God but one. And Paul says, you know, that's absolutely true too. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And then he goes on in, in verses 5 and 6 and expounds that argument that they're making. He says this, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. Paul says, look, in our day, there are so many so-called gods. You had the, 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 the Greek and the Roman mythology. You had different uh, religions that were rising up. And in our day, we have so many uh, religions and cult. we have major world religions like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. We have uh, cults that rise up like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists. And, and not only that, we have so many other competing philosophies like atheism and agnosticism and, uh, you know, uh, uh, deism and, and um, uh, secular humanism. 
in all of these, listen, all of these have a set of beliefs whereby they look at the world and they say, this is the best explanation for the world. Sometimes we think like, well, if someone doesn't believe in God, then they don't have, like, they don't have any faith. They don't even have uh, any, any kind of uh, worldview, but they certainly do. Everyone answers the big questions of life. How do we get here? Why are we here? What, what is wrong with the world? How do we make our way through all of this mess? And in the end, if there is an end, how do we get there? And what is it like? Everyone has answers to these questions. And Paul is saying, look, I've come to know, you've come to know, we've come to know that there is truly only one God. I love that language that Paul uses in verse 4. Look at what he's, actually verse 6, he says, yet for us there is one God. He's, this is confessional language. He's saying what we've come to discover, what we know to be true. He's not saying like, like this is like a pluralistic statement like, well, this is our thing relatively you know, true for us. And you have your thing. This is relatively true for you. Okay. Paul believes in absolute truth. There is one God. And he is saying this is who we know him to be. He is God the Father. The one whom, for whom are all things and the one from whom are all things. And what Paul is doing here is he's echoing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which was the, the great confessional statement of the people of Israel when they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There is only one God who made us for himself to know him. There is only one God who gives us the strength we need to live each and every day. But then he goes on and right immediately after that, he says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Some scholars have called this statement the greatest statement on the deity of Christ outside of John chapter 1 verse 1. Which says, speaking of Jesus, the word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, sorry, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word, I'm quoting verse 14. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You, you, this super clear. Jesus, the word, was with God in the beginning, and he was God in the very beginning. And now we get to this statement where Paul's saying, there's only one God, our Father, who everything is from him and for him. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom is everything and through whom everything continues to exist. And so the question I have for all of us today. Listen, no matter, no matter what your spiritual journey has looked like, maybe you're like, man, Pastor Tanner, this is new for me. And I come from different traditions and even some of the religions or philosophies that you just named. Like that's really been my belief system more than, you know, the way of Jesus. But it's our, our hope and our prayer today that, that you'll come to say with Paul, yet for me, yet for us. That there needs to come a moment in everyone's life where we can say, listen, there is, there is no other God. There is no one like Jesus. Nobody came after me like Jesus. Nobody loves me like Jesus. No one offers me grace like Jesus. No one 
else rose from the dead like Jesus. No one else keeps me going like Jesus. Jesus is the one I am following in. And then when we come to that place, one of our greatest joys is then going to the people that we care about around us and say, listen, this is, this is what I've come to know and believe. What about you? Where, where are you on your spiritual journey? Because again, everyone has answers to these big questions. And we need to lovingly point them to the fact that there is no one like Jesus. There is no other God beside Jesus. Uh, just, just think about the, the, the story of Jesus' life and how at every point we find there's no one like him. There's no other God who left heaven and came to earth besides Jesus. That's what we call the incarnation. There's no other God, listen, who was crucified on our behalf. We ask, what's wrong with the world and why is it so messed up? And what the problem of evil and suffering and why does bad things happen and all of these things? Well, listen, there is no other worldview under the sun. That, that so understands the, the human plight of human suffering like Christianity because you have a God who not only comes to earth and suffers with us, but a God who suffers for us. There's no one like Jesus. There's no other God who offers us salvation by grace. You, you go and talk to other religions, other cults, others. Like It's going to be about what they can do to earn their way to God. But Christianity is about what God has done to come to us. To offer us the gift that he wants to give. Not salvation that we could earn by doing enough or being kind enough or doing enough good things. There's no other God who rose from the dead. See, listen, th there are so many different directions we can go when we're having these spiritual conversations with our friends. And, and it's good to go to different places and ask real questions that people are, answer real questions that people are asking. But ultimately, let me, let me give you this, this one tip, okay? Keep bringing it back to Jesus. Jesus is the, the center piece of the story. Jesus is the one that, that all of the story culminates in and flows from forever. No matter, no matter what conversation we find ourselves in, we just keep taking it back to Jesus. I mean, you, you might be surprised. Let me just say this. You might be surprised that, that the people that you love, that you feel like, oh, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They've rejected Christianity. They're so down on, you know, the church is so messed up. And like, and hey, the church is often messed up. They're, Christians, we're imperfect. There's a lot of things that we need to work on as human beings and as churches. But what I found is that so many times people are rejecting something they don't even know about. They're, they're, they're rejecting an idea that's not really Christianity. I love what, what, what some have said about uh, sharing Christ with people, that it's actually teaching with the aim to persuade. In other words, when we share Christ with, with people around us, okay, we, we are probably giving them information that they've never considered. We're, we're showing them truths and claims that, Maybe they've, they've never heard. 
and doing it in a way that's saying, yet for me, he changed my whole life. I used to be this anxious person, and now I have peace. I used to be just kind of moping through life. Now I have joy. Yet for us, Jesus has changed everything. And so Paul starts this whole conversation, and he says, look, love outshines knowledge. Yes, it's good to have knowledge. It's good to, to, to know that idols aren't real, okay. But, but in all that you do, you want to build others up. As you follow Jesus Christ. But then number two, a second principle he gives us here. Not only does love outshine knowledge, love limits freedom. Love limits freedom. What what Paul does then in verses 7 through 13 is he starts to get more to the heart of the issue. And he starts to correct their thinking because in verse 7 he says, like, hold on, Corinthians, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Look at what he says. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. What we we see here is Paul is saying, look, there are some that are newer to the the faith. They're they're newer to the ways of Christ. And they, they are so connected still with their old way of life. They, they used to come to the pagan temples all the time. And, and they still have the vestiges of those practices so that when they go into a temple to buy something or they, you know, walk by it, they start having all these flashbacks of just how dark it was and, and how, you know, the, the chants and the smells and everything in there. It reminds them of their old way of life when they didn't know the freedom that's in Christ. And so he says, look, don't assume that everyone has this knowledge that you have, but be considerate that some people have what Paul calls a weak conscience. Now, now what is our conscience? Our conscience is like our inner judge, okay? It it helps us uh, differentiate right from wrong in any given circumstance. It's like an internal moral compass that is is pointing us in a direction of of that which is right, good, and true. And so so Paul is saying, as as some of these brothers and sisters that have these former associations, like they used to be in the temple doing all these things, he says, you need to watch out because some of them feel as though, as if they partake with any food sacrificed to an idol, that they are going to be back into that position of worshiping a false god. And Paul knows that God made us. Listen, this is one of the arguments for the existence of God, by the way, that that God made us with a conscience to differentiate right from wrong. And if we all have a capacity to differentiate right from wrong, then there must be a lawgiver. There must be someone who is morally over the universe that helps human beings understand that there is right from wrong. And Paul's saying you don't want to violate your conscience. You want to do everything in line with this inner sense of right and wrong. So in order to to help them do this, Paul, again, he says in verse 8, look, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So so basically he's saying food is not the issue, 
All right? Like, eat whatever kind of diet you want. You can be a vegetarian. You can be a vegan. You can be a carnivorian. You can be on keto diet, you know, like uh, gluten-free, dairy-free, whatever-free. Okay, it's like, it's not about food, but it's about your family. It's about the people around you. And this is where he, he shifts. In verse 8, what does Paul actually sounds like what? He sounds like a Christian of the culture, right? He's like, food, food doesn't make you worse off. It doesn't make you better off. Just eat whatever kind of food you want. Be a Christian of the culture. Actually, he's not saying that. Because he goes on and shifts in verses 9 through 13. And he shows us what it's like to be a Christian in the culture. And listen, Christians in the culture, please hear this, it requires nuance. It requires wisdom, okay? You can't just like, hey, you never go here, or you never listen to that. Or it's, it takes spirit-guided wisdom. And so Paul goes on in, in verse 9, this is what he says. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? This word that Paul uses, right, can also be translated liberty or freedom. So in other words, Paul just said in verse 8, what? You're free. You have the right to eat this meat or not eat this meat. But then he says, look, your, your freedom, your right to do that can actually become a stumbling block for someone else who doesn't have the maturity and the perspective that you do. So because you are living a life of love, your love is going to limit your freedom in this circumstance. I mean, we, we all want to live free, right? Like we, we live in America, right? The land of the free. We all love our freedoms. And I'll never forget a family vacation that uh, our family took when I was in high school. It was the summer after my sophomore year of high school. Uh, my, my dad dreamed up this, uh, you know, out, we called it our out west trip, okay? So I grew up kind of in the, the Midwest, South Kentucky. And uh, what we did, we, we drove across Missouri and then up, you know, through Kansas, Iowa, into like over across to the Dakotas. I think my geography is pretty on point at this point. And, you know, we, we make our way through the Badlands and then we're into Wyoming. We see Yellowstone and Jackson Hole. And then we cut, you know, down uh, through Utah and Arizona. Like it was an amazing trip. We drove like 5,000 miles in 12 days or something. It was crazy. But while we were in Wyoming, we cut up to Montana. And, and those of you that, that enjoy fast cars, you would love Montana because at that point, I think they actually have enacted speed limit laws, but at that point, the speed limit sign, I kid you not, it said reasonable and prudent. That's it. It's like, it's like if those of you from Germany, we have some Germans in the house. Okay, the Autobahn, it's like you can drive however fast you want. And so when we got to Montana, what was the backseat driver doing in the back? Me. I was like, Dad, go faster. It's like 75, go faster, Dad. Like, there's no speed limit. It doesn't say anything about 65, 75. Like, let's go faster. And my mom is like, Kurt, slow down. Like, you know, it's like she's, oh, she's all afraid and she's all about the limits and I'm all about the freedom. And it's, 
It's like this is, this is sometimes how we live our spiritual life. Like we want freedom. We don't want anything to restrict us. And so we're going to do what we want to do. And we know that we're free in Christ. And, you know, God has made everything good. And so we can enjoy the world that he has made. And, you know, we can have the maturity to differentiate this from that. And, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to slow down. And we need to consider how our actions will either build someone else up in their faith or cause them to stumble and slow down in their faith. Verse 10, Paul says that, that your freedom may become someone else's prison. Uh, in verse 10, it says that, that if someone sees you who have this knowledge eating in the temple, will he not be encouraged? The word means fortified. In other words, he's like, I shouldn't do that, but now I see you doing that, so I'm going to do something that I know I shouldn't do because my conscience is telling me no, but because your conscience said yes, now I'm just going to do what you're doing. And all of a sudden, the consequences for this are very, very serious. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, the weak person is destroyed. In verse 12, he says, their conscience is wounded or it's struck. In verse 13, like verse 9, it says that, that they are made to stumble. In other words, they are tripped up, causing them to fall. And the message here, listen, the message is that our actions cause another brother or sister that's part of the same family to be hindered in their faith. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 14. You can read the whole chapter in your own time, but I want to read verses 13 through 15 for us this morning. Paul says this, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Christians of the culture, right? But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean, that weaker conscience, brother or sister. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, listen to this, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And what Paul does again and again and again, that's why we're calling this whole 16-chapter series, The Cross Into Our Chaos, is because no matter if we're talking about division and unity, we're talking about, you know, issues in the church that are happening relationally, we're talking about sex, we're talking about matters of the culture like this, what does Paul do again and again and again and again and again? He keeps bringing it back to Christ. He keeps bringing it back to the cross. What Paul does as he says, look, in verses 11 and 12, he gives the, the strongest possible motivation. He says that because Jesus died for your brothers and sisters to live free, don't do anything that would cause them to stumble. He, he, he says, and, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the person for whom Christ died. 
What would happen, listen, what would happen if we started to filter all of our decisions through this lens of, hey, God loves this person so much that he died for them so that now I'm going to make my decisions not simply on what's good for me or what's in it for me, but I'm going to consider how my actions impact this person. That God loved enough to die for them. And then on top of that, if Paul isn't clear enough with that motivation, he says this, look, if you sin against them, you sin against Jesus. It's that serious. So listen, by all means, consider uh, your freedom and and what to listen to and where to go and what to watch and, you know, uh, all of these things. Listen, there is so much for us to enjoy in our world, in our culture. But we want to do so with the wisdom that God gives us. To to build the, the people up around us, to love them like we've been loved by God. It's our opportunity every day to bleed red into these gray areas of life. We set aside our rights so that other people can know and can experience God's love. And so as we begin just to consider how God wants us to respond today, I want to remind you of this, that we as followers of Jesus have the greatest example of someone who set aside his rights so that we might experience his freedom. Jesus, though he was perfect, Jesus, though he uh, did not deserve death, takes on the cross, laying aside his rights so that we might accept his gift and experience his freedom. So no matter, no matter what it is, no matter what we're going through, this is our opportunity. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And so I just want to ask you this morning, listen, how is it that you need to receive God's love today? Maybe for some of you, you're saying, you know what, Pastor Tanner, uh, this is new for me, but wow, I, I didn't realize that God did this for me by sending Christ into the world. Living a perfect life on my behalf, dying in my place, rising again, so that if I would look to him, I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to get it all right. I don't have to clean myself up and then come to God. No, I just receive his gift and my whole life is changed. If that's you, if you need to receive God's love, listen, do it right now. Just say yes to God. Say, I want to follow Jesus with everything I am. I want to receive the gift of his love. But for those of you who have have already made that decision and you're seeking to, to live as a Christian that's hopefully not against the culture but not of the culture but a Christian in the culture, maybe there's some things that you're just sorting through. And it's like, God, I need your wisdom to know how to, how to respond in the workplace or, you know, what to do on the weekend or all of these different things that, that we, we, we wrestle with. And so I want to invite you to, to, to pray where you are. We're going to have a prayer team that's going to come forward in just a moment that's willing to pray with you. It could be about anything you've heard this morning. It could be just about anything you have going on in life, something that's weighing you down that you're struggling with. We want to be a church that supports one another, that loves one another, that builds one another up. So what I want to do is I want to pray. 
And I want to invite you to stand and sing and respond as God leads us this morning. So, Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to understand your love. God, that we would keep coming to you again and again and again. Lord, whatever it is, if, if, if that person is saying, wow, God, you, you've done this for me. You love me like this. God, we pray that you would help them to respond right now to you. And in whatever it is, God, that you would give us the strength to keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step as we learn to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to invite our prayer team to come down and to be ready to pray with people. If you want to pray anything that's going on in your life, your world right now, uh, feel free to take opportunity to pray with someone else. Let's all stand and let's sing together.